This is a message from Grace Church, located in Frisco, Texas, a suburb of Dallas-Fort Worth. Grace Church is affiliated with Sovereign Grace Ministries. The Grace Church website is gracechurchfrisco.org. The speaker for this message is Craig Cabanis, the senior pastor of Grace Church. John chapter 18. Before we jump into this, uh, we're going to cover a lot today. Before we jump in, I wanted to just piggyback on the previous announcement about the man-to-man uh, gathering this coming uh, Saturday right here. I'm really looking forward to participating in that and always do. And uh, I was telling someone recently who's on the leadership team for Man to Man, that's led by uh, Bob Hughes, leads that ministry, and we were talking. And um, I was just communicating that as I review 2011 in our church, and it's a little early for review, there's still some time left in 2011. But as I review 2011, one of the highlights to me uh, in our church has been the birthing of the man-to-man ministry. And we've really only met twice. This will be the third time, and this will be the last time for 2011 that we're going to meet. But I have felt like in those two meetings, God has accomplished a lot in, uh, in men's lives. And, the, and my measure for that is just the number of people I've had tell me that in coming to that me- in those meetings that God had um, changed their view of their work uh, they, Monday through Friday was beginning to look different for them. It was beginning to look at as a uh, beginning to look like a um, an act of worship. Relationships on the job with a, an employer or, or the em- fellow employees have begun to look different and begin to have greater purpose. That they begin to see God's call and God's work in their lives through their work. Um, so that has been a tremendous highlight to me. And we, again, we've only met twice. There's been a lot of planning. That team has put in a lot of planning and a lot of prayer into those meetings, but it seems to have really gotten traction with a number of guys. And so I don't know how we can do fewer meetings and accomplish more in the life of the church like man-to-man, but that's a role model of ministry for me to think of fewer meetings and gaining more ground, less meetings, more maturity. That's, I think that should just be our church motto. I mean, I love meetings, but to gain a lot of ground in a few meetings is an exciting thing. So God's really doing a wonderful thing there. I just want to encourage you to come if you're 16 or up and bring, bring a guest with you. This is a guest-friendly environment. We've had guests, we've had people that don't know Christ at both of those meetings, and it's been very introductory and, and non-threatening, I think, for guys who may not know the Lord. So excited about that and ready to jump in on that, and you can sign up immediately after, after the service. Well, let's pray, and then we will uh, we'll jump into this text. God, we thank you today that you speak through your word, and we're coming before your word today with our ears open. And we're saying, speak, Lord. We need to hear from you. And perhaps the greatest need is for those of us in the room that aren't aware of our need for you this morning. God, would you speak to us by showing us our need for you? And then would you speak to us and meet us today, we pray. God, we ask you that you would, uh, that you would open our eyes to see the Savior in greater clarity and what he's done for us, Lord, and change us through that revelation of Jesus, we pray. And fill us with your spirit that we may hear your word and respond um, with eagerness, Lord, to honor you. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, let me review very briefly what we did last week. Last week, we covered verses 1 through 11, and this was Jesus' arrest. So we only covered a little bit. I had intended to cover more. We only covered a little, so that means there's a lot to cover this week. But we looked at Jesus' arrest and saw how at his arrest, 
he is demonstrating his sovereignty, his rulership, his, uh, that he's in charge of his own arrest very clearly. He is declaring himself God, revealing himself as God, the I am, and people are falling over under the power of his speaking that he is the I am. And uh, he's healing people at his arrest. I mean, Peter cuts a guy's ear off. Jesus is healing that ear as the creator God who heals. And so then he is arrested, and we're going to look at uh, two sections today. And I'm going to read one and then teach about it and then read the other and teach about it and then make some concluding application at the very end. So let's read verses 12 through 27 to begin with. So the band of soldiers and their captain and the officers of the Jews arrested Jesus and bound him. First they led him to Annas, for he was the father-in-law of Caiaphas, who was high priest that year. It was Caiaphas who had advised the Jews that it would be expedient that one man should die for the people. Simon Peter followed Jesus, and so did another disciple. Since that disciple was known to the high priest, he entered with Jesus into the court of the high priest. But Peter stood outside the door. So the other disciple, who was known to the high priest, went out and spoke to the servant girl who kept watch at the door and brought Peter in. The servant girl at the door said to Peter, You also are not one of this man's disciples, are you? He said, I am not. Now the servants and officers had made a charcoal fire because it was cold, and they were standing and warming themselves. Peter also was with them, standing and warming himself. The high priest then questioned Jesus about his disciples and his teaching. Jesus answered him, I have spoken openly to the world. I have always taught in synagogues and in the temple where all Jews come together. I have said nothing in secret. Why do you ask me? Ask those who have heard me what I said to them. They know what I said. When he had said these things, one of the officers standing by struck Jesus with his hand, saying, Is that how you answer the high priest? Jesus answered him, If what I said is wrong, bear witness about the wrong. But if what I said is right, why do you strike me? Annas then sent him bound to Caiaphas, the high priest. Now Simon Peter was standing and warming himself. So they said to him, You also are not one of his disciples, are you? He denied it and said, I am not one of the servants of the high priest. A relative of the man whose ear Peter had cut off said, Did I not see you in the garden with him? Peter again denied it, and at once a rooster crowed. Last week we looked at two things about Jesus revealed in his arrest, Jesus the sovereign and Jesus the sacrifice. And I want to sort of follow a a similar pattern today and look at what is revealed of Jesus in the the trials that he experiences here uh, at the end. What does it reveal about Jesus? Whenever we read the scripture, we want to be asking that question. What does this text tell me about God? What does it reveal about God? That's the most important question to ask of the text. What does it reveal about Christ? What does it reveal about his work for us in the gospel as well? So today I want to look at two things. Jesus the faithful in the section we just read, and then we're going to read about Pilate and look at Jesus the true or Jesus the truth after that. Now, in the passage we just read, there's two things going on, and they're woven together. There is Jesus standing before Annas 
and having a dialogue with him, an interview of sorts. And then there is also Peter encountering various people uh, and being asked about his relationship with Jesus. And so the way John writes this, this is a historical account. This is how he, this is how it happened. But, G, but John tells it in a way that he doesn't say, now here's what happened with Annas, and here's what happened with Peter. He weaves the two stories together. We're one place and then another, one place and another. And the reason he do, does that, I believe, is to give the effect that there are two trials going on here. There are two different trials. Jesus is on trial before Annas, and Peter is on trial before the world, before a part of the world, a few people in the world anyway. And in this trial, there is one faithful witness, and there is one faithless witness. And the two are contrasted. And so we learn something about Jesus, and we learn something about Peter as well in this trial. First of all, it says that, verse 12, the band of soldiers took him bound, verse 13, they led him to Annas, for he was the father-in-law of Caiaphas, who was the high priest that year. Annas had been high priest between the years 6 and 15 A.D. And then following that, uh, a series of his sons served as high priest. And then in this year, um, what is going on in this account, his son-in-law Caiaphas is the high priest. So they're bringing him before, they're bringing Jesus before Annas, who was kind of an original high priest with his sons following him in his household. And it also tells us, John also tells us in verse 14, that Caiaphas had advised the Jews earlier, uh, he, he does that uh, previously in chapter 11, that uh, that it would be expedient that one man should die for the people. So John just reminds us what happened back in 11. Chapter 11, Caiaphas makes the statement that rather than all of the people rise up following Jesus and revolt against the Jewish authorities and maybe even the Romans, that it would be better for one person to die for the people. So he makes an ironic but a prophetic statement because that's what Jesus is going to do. He is going to die for the people. So first of all, we see this is Jesus uh, being brought before Annas. Then it cuts, verse 15, it's kind of like an edit in a film. We go to another scene right outside with Simon Peter. And he is interacting here uh, with this, uh, initially this servant girl who lets him in. So evidently, uh, he doesn't get in initially to the courtyard, the area, the court of the high priest. And so there is this bouncer in the form of a servant girl. I'm not really some tough servant girl, I guess. She's guarding the door, not letting people in. And uh, so another disciple says, go let Peter in. And she says in verse 17, the servant girl at the door said to Peter, Peter, you also are not one of his disciples, are you? And he says, I am not. So he denies that. He's a follower of Jesus. A disciple is a learner or follower. He says, I am not a follower of Jesus Christ. Now, the background of this is a few chapters back in 13. In chapter 13, there's this exchange where Jesus tells Simon Peter that he's going somewhere and Peter can't come, and where he's going is to die. So if you look back, if you flip back in chapter 13, look at verse 36. Simon Peter said to him, meaning Jesus, Lord, where are you going? Jesus answered him, where I am going, you cannot follow me, but you will follow afterward. Verse 37, Peter said to him, Lord, why can I not follow you now? I will lay down my life for you. Jesus answered, will you lay down your life for me? 
Truly, truly, I say to you, the rooster will not crow till you have denied me three times. And so Jesus tells Peter what's going to happen, that he's going to deny Peter three times before morning, when the rooster crows in the morning. And we see this first denial taking place right here. So Peter is asserting his loyalty. Peter is saying, I will die for you. It's a bold statement. Jesus, what do you mean you're going somewhere I can't come? I'm committed. I am all in. I would die for you. I would give my life for you. Nothing will stop me from going after you and living for you, except a little servant girl who asks if I know you, at which point he would deny him, wouldn't he? And then he stands with them at the charcoal fire, warming himself with the others. At the end of John 17, Jesus has prayed for his disciples. And he prays, he prays this, I pray that you don't take them out of the world, but I pray that you sanctify them, that is, set them apart for me, and send them back into the world. So Jesus is praying, I pray that my disciples will be in the world, not separate from the world, they will be in the world, but not of the world. They will be in the world, but not like the world. They'll make a difference. I'm praying that you would make them holy and send them into the world so that they'll stand out. And here is Peter warming himself, standing and warming themselves. Peter was with them, standing and warm. So he's standing around the fire with the enemies of Jesus. And he's denying the Lord to fit in. He's denying the Lord to be under the radar. He's denying the Lord so that he can just quietly observe what is happening without any questions about his allegiance to Jesus, without any knowledge that he's a follower of Christ. He is in the world, and he is of the world at this moment. At this moment, he is in the world, and he is like the world. He's camouflaged. He's blending in. He doesn't want to make any waves. He, he is motivated by self-protection. He just wants to be unknown and not identify with Jesus He stands with Jesus' enemies. He is sent, but he is not sanctified at this point. So then there's an edit in the scene again, and we go back into the high priest, uh, talking, uh, Annas, talking with Jesus. Look at verse 19. The high priest then questioned Jesus about his disciples and his teaching. What, what Annas is going to do here is he is, this isn't a formal trial and Jesus kind of in a minute asks for one. But what he's doing is he's interviewing Jesus and he is hoping that Jesus will incriminate himself, that Jesus might say something that would incriminate himself. So he asks about two things. Tell me about your disciples. What do you teach with them? What are you doing with them? Talk to me about the disciples and then tell me about your teaching. The concern with the disciples is this. Deuteronomy 13 says that if a false prophet comes and does signs, amazing things, and draws people into following him away from God, that that false prophet is to be killed, to be stoned, to be, to be uh, killed, executed by stoning. And so he's probably wanting to know, what are you teaching your disciples? When you're with them, what are you doing? Wanting to establish, will Jesus incriminate himself as a prophet who does signs and leads the people, his closest followers, astray? He secondly wants to know about his teaching. Now, when he's asking here, he's likely looking for, because we can see later this comes up, he's likely looking for Jesus to make a claim to deity, to say he's God. 
So what's your teaching? Tell me about your teaching. What do you say about yourself? What do you say about yourself in response in relationship to God? What are you like? And so he's wanting to know, are you leading people astray? Are you claiming to be God? <laughs> That's awkward. Um, are you, uh, are you claiming to be God? What are you doing with your teaching and with your disciples? And so what happens is at this point, Jesus speaks up. He speaks up and he makes two points. He says, first of all, that my teaching is not secretive. He says, I have been in the temple. I have been in the synagogue. And I am teaching openly. There's no behind the scenes teaching. There's no, what he's saying is, there's no conspiracy. People are always looking for a conspiracy. The leaders here are trying to say there's a conspiracy, what you're doing. He says there's no conspiracy. When I am in secret with the disciples, I teach the same thing. Ask someone who's heard me. I've taught publicly all the time. I'm on record. I'm on record with what I say and what I teach about God and about myself. So he wants to shut that down and say, uh, I am who I am. You, you see who I am. He is being faithful. It's a contrast between faithfulness and faithlessness. Peter has already demonstrated a step towards faithlessness. Jesus is being faithful. He's saying, I'm a man of integrity. I am open. I have no secrets. What I teach in private, I teach in the open. I am the same person in private that you see when I teach in public. That's what Jesus is saying of himself. That's faithfulness. Faithfulness is ultimately integrity. It's not being two-faced. It's not being hypocritical. It's not being one thing in front of some people, another thing in front of others. It is being who you are and he is God in private and in public. He teaches the same in private and in public. Jesus is speaking faithfully. The second thing he does is he says, why don't you ask others? Um, I have said nothing in secret. Why do you ask me? Ask those who have heard me what I said to them. They know what I said. He's asking for an appropriate trial. He's not to be tried by being interviewed himself. An appropriate trial would, would be in their day, like ours, an appropriate trial would be that these charges are established by two or three witnesses, not by just someone asking Jesus, but the charges be established by two or three witnesses, and that ultimately those witnesses give testimony and be cross-examined. So it's not just what does Annas think. Jesus is saying, why don't we get some people who've heard me teach, let's bring them in here. He's asking for a formal accounting, an appropriate accounting with witnesses, multiple witnesses, two or three at least, the scripture says, and, um, and cross-examination of those witnesses. So Jesus is speaking openly. He is speaking faithfully. And one of the officers standing by does not like it, and he strikes Jesus in the face. And so Jesus just responds very honestly and openly and said, if what I've said is wrong, bear witness about the wrong. So if what I'm saying is wrong, um, just explain why my request is out of line. If what I'm saying is wrong, just explain how I'm trans, transgressing, how I'm stepping over the boundary of Scripture. No, he's asking, he's demonstrating that he is faithful, he is real, and he's asking for biblical requirements. He's doing nothing wrong. He says, but... Uh, if what I say is right, why are you hitting me? Why are you hitting me if I'm doing the, the right thing here? So he is telling the truth. He has walked openly. There is no conspiracy. He has been truthful. They, in fact, the Jews have prejudged the matter, though. Their mind is made up, and we're going to see that as soon as they stand in front of Pilate in a few verses. They are just, they want one thing. They want Jesus killed. 
and they are looking for an opportunity to execute him. But Jesus is not backing down. He's staying faithful to his calling. He's standing on his teaching. And his standing on his teaching and his standing on his calling that he is sent from God to save people, he is sent from God as God to speak the truth, that's going to cost him his life. That will cost him his faithfulness will cost him his life. Now, after that section, there's an edit, and we're back with Peter, verse 25, cut again. Returns to Peter. Simon Peter was standing and warming himself, so it picks up right where it ended. He's warming himself, and so they said to him, You also are not one of his disciples, are you? He denied it and said, I am not. One of the servants of the high priest, a relative of the man whose ear Peter had cut off, asked, Did I not see you in the garden with him? Peter again denied it, and at once a rooster crowed. So he says, I am not, verse 25. He, someone else, a high, he had, he had attempted to cut a, well, he attempted to kill someone and he cut the guy's ear off at Jesus' arrest. And so a relative of Malchus who had his ear cut off, uh, Jesus fixed it. He put it back on and reattached it. He's the creator. He healed the guy, um, in the garden, in the garden when the arrest went on. But he, he, um, his relative is there and said, didn't I see you out there? In other words, aren't you the guy that tried to kill my relative? And he says, no, that's not me. I am not with him. And then the rooster crows. What does the rooster crowing signify? It signifies that Jesus is faithful. Jesus, in chapter 13, had said this would happen. Jesus had predicted. Jesus had said, Peter, you're so self-assured of your walk with me. You're so confident in your commitment and in your righteousness, do you realize you're going to deny me three times before morning? And then the rooster will crow. You're going to, divide, uh, you're going to deny me three times before the rooster crows. And the crowing represents that, that Jesus has told the truth. Jesus predicted this. This is part of the script that God has designed. Jesus knows ahead of time. Jesus makes a promise to Peter, and it comes true. Jesus' Jesus's words are always faithful. They are always true. They always come to pass. And here's an example. And it not only shouts to us that Jesus is true, but it also he's faithful. It also communicates that Peter is not faithful. Peter has denied his Lord. And in Luke, it says that when the rooster crowed, Peter, Peter he, uh, he wept bitterly, realizing that he has denied God. He has denied the Jesus, the one he loves, it signals that Peter has been unfaithful, so sure of his devotion, so sure of his passion, but he's going to learn that it is not his faithfulness, but it is Jesus' faithfulness that makes all the difference. Jesus is faithful. In the garden at the arrest, when Peter says, I'm going to take this into my own hands and tries to attempts to kill the servant, Jesus says, stop that. I must drink the cup. I must go through this death. It means I must endure the judgment that is due sinners. I must die in their place. Jesus is faithful to go on, to not resist, but to follow the Father and to go on. Jesus is faithful to speak the truth at his trial. When he could have not spoken the truth, maybe he could have tried to get out of it or done something like this. Jesus is God and always speaks the truth. So he is faithful at his trial. He's faithful when he is beaten, tortured, mocked. He is faithful to stand true 
to fulfill the purpose the Father has sent him for. When he is on the cross dying, when he is absorbing the wrath of God that is due you and due me, when he is suffering in an excruciating, uh, incomprehensible manner for us, when he is dying that death, he is faithful to his character to love. For he says, Father, forgive them. Those who kill me, forgive them. I don't know what, they know not what they do. Forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. He's faithful to his character. He's loving. He's always loving. He's truthful. He's always truthful. He cares for his people. He lays down his life for his people. Event after event, verse after verse, the faithfulness of Jesus is on display here. But Peter, on the other hand, is faithless. Two trials that are parallel. And these two trials, Peter before the world, Jesus before Annas, these two trials show that Jesus is faithful to his faithless followers. Jesus is faithful to his faithless followers. Here's what the word faithless means. It means not adhering to an allegiance not sticking to an allegiance, not sticking to promises, not sticking to vows or to duty. Peter has an allegiance to Jesus and has stated that, but he doesn't stick to his allegiance to Jesus. He doesn't stick to his uh, his allegiance to his promises. He said, I'll die for you, Jesus, but he will not die. He will, he will say, I don't even know him three times in a very short period of time. In Jesus' hour of trial, Peter denies that he even knows him. He doesn't fulfill his vow. He doesn't fulfill his duty to the Lord. And how much we can relate to Peter. I mean, maybe you've never said, I don't, as a Christian, maybe you've never said as a Christian, I don't know Jesus. Maybe you've never, as a Christian, verbally said, I am not a follower of Jesus like he does. Maybe you've never out and out denied verbally Jesus like he has three times. But let's be honest, Peter is, uh, he's under threat of severe persecution and even death here. So, I mean, it's a little, I think we need to give a little bit of an understanding here. There's a guy saying, hey, look, are you the one who, who knifed my relative? And, uh, and everybody's opposed to him sitting around the fire, opposed to Peter. So under, he caves under the pressure of threat. We may not know that, but how often do we stand around the fire with the world who does not know Jesus and out of fear don't say anything? How often? We, we know what Peter's doing here. We know about being silent when the Spirit is prompting us to speak up for Jesus. We know what it's like to compromise because we don't want to stand out uncomfortably. We want to blend in with our friends at school. We want to blend in with our coworkers, our family, our neighbor. We just don't want to make waves. We don't want to be that guy that makes things uncomfortable. We don't want to be viewed as narrow-minded. We don't want to be viewed as we, we don't want to to take the caricatures of what people think of as Christians and be associated with that by speaking up and giving a verbal allegiance to Jesus. We, we know what that is like. We know what it's like to stand around to be in the world and of the world, standing around the fire, warming ourselves silently and hoping no one else says anything that could out me as a believer. We hope that no one's especially a direct question. Twice it occurs around the fire and once on the way into the fire. 
and and by someone who's not an intimidating presence. Again, I don't know who this servant girl was, but I'm assuming she's not an intimidating presence. So it's easy just to be to want to be thought well of, to want to fit in, to want to to not ruffle any feathers. It's easy to do that, and we can relate to Peter. And the hope for Peter is the same hope for us. And here's that hope, that Jesus is faithful to his faithless followers. Peter's learning here that it's not his faithfulness that's most important. It's the faithfulness of Jesus. Peter's hope is not that he will never deny the Lord. Peter's hope is that Jesus will be faithful and go through with what the Father has sent him to do. Because that's where salvation is found. Salvation is not found in my obedience or your obedience. Salvation is found in the obedience of Jesus. Obedience even to death, death on a cross. That's how we receive forgiveness of our sins, is by the fact he is faithful to God's calling. So when we have been faithless, when we have been cowardly, when we have had fear of man, when we didn't open our mouth because we weren't even looking for an opportunity because, frankly, we didn't even care enough about the soul of another. Because we were consumed with ourselves, and we missed the opportunity. And when the opportunity did present itself, we prefer just not to go there and remain quiet. When we've been a faithless witness like that, in Jesus and his death, we meet forgiveness. That's what's going to happen to Peter. He's going to get reconciled with Jesus after his resurrection and welcomed. And he's not only going to be forgiven, but on the day of Pentecost, the Spirit falls, and he's going to be empowered. So Jesus doesn't just forgive us and say, okay, that's in the past. Jesus forgives us and then empowers us by the Spirit so that we can be a bold witness. This Jesus, this Peter, rather, who's afraid of a servant girl, will stand up in front of many people that could kill him, in Jerusalem on the day of Pentecost, and he's not just going to give a nice self-help message. He's not just going to say, hey, everybody, if you would just ask Jesus in your heart, everything would go great, your marriage would be happy, you could make a lot of money. He's not going to be some self-help guru that's going to say, just accept Jesus and everything will be okay. He's going to say, you people killed Jesus. That's what he says in Acts. You people And that's all people. You and me are in that crowd. You people, all you people, by your sin, ultimately killed Jesus, is what he said. But this Jesus extends forgiveness to you and grace and new life. And 3,000 people meet Christ that day. Peter, who is afraid of a servant girl, is not afraid of anybody but fearing God and declaring the good news that we can be forgiven of our rejection of Christ. He preaches that in Acts 2. So the faithful Savior forgives faithless followers. The faithful Savior empowers us so that we can be faithful followers. Our hope is not in our faithfulness. It's in the Savior who forgives our unfaithfulness and the Savior who empowers us and changes us increasingly to be more and more like him. There's great hope in the tale of two trials because the faithful one stands out in bold relief against faithless humanity. The next passage teaches us about how Jesus is not only faithful, but he is true. Look at verse 25. No, I'm sorry, we already did that. Verse 28 to the end of the chapter. Then they led Jesus from the house of Caiaphas to the governor's headquarters. It was early morning. They themselves did not enter the governor's headquarters so that they would not be defiled but could eat the Passover. 
So Pilate went outside to them and said, What accusation do you bring against this man? They answered him, If this man were not doing evil, we would not have delivered him over to you. Pilate said to them, Take him yourselves and judge him by your own law. The Jews said to him, It is not lawful for us to put anyone to death. This was to fulfill the word that Jesus had spoken to show by what kind of death he was going to die. So Pilate entered his headquarters again and called Jesus and said to him, Are you the king of the Jews? Jesus answered, Do you say this of your own accord, or did others say it to you about me? Pilate answered, Am I a Jew? Your own nation and the chief priests have delivered you over to me. What have you done? Jesus answered, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews. But my kingdom is not from the world. Then Pilate said to him, So you are a king. Jesus answered, You say that I am a king. For this purpose I was born, and for this purpose I have come into the world, to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. Pilate said to him, What is truth? After he had said this, he went back outside to the Jews and told them, I find no guilt in him, but you have a custom that I should release one man for you at the Passover. So do you want me to release to you the king of the Jews? They cried out again, not this man, but Barabbas. Now Barabbas was a robber. So here we see a passage about Jesus's truth. This is really about his remaining true. Now, in the other Gospels, there's an account of something that happens between meeting with Annas uh, and, the, and the meeting with Pilate, and that is Jesus has tried before the Jewish high court called the Sanhedrin, and there they find him guilty of blasphemy, claiming to be God, and so then they take him to Pilate. John wants to emphasize his standing before Pilate and his condemnation before ultimately Roman rule, not just the Jewish authorities. And the heartbeat of this section is this statement about truth. Look at verse 37 again. Pilate said to him, so you are a king, and Jesus answered, you say that I am a king. For this purpose I was born, and for this purpose I have come into the world, to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to me. And Pilate said to him, what is truth? So Jesus here is speaking truth. He is the truth. John fourteen six says that he is the way, the truth, and the life. He's representing God truthfully, reality, and accurately. He's re- reflecting God. And there is, this, uh, there is this miscarriage of justice because what's going on is not true justice. What's going on is not a true inquiry into who Jesus is. Um, that's not happening at all. What's going on is, is not even a true recognition of who he is. And there's tremendous irony here that the, the religious leaders in particular are blind. Look at what happens in verse 28. It says that they led Jesus from the house of Caiaphas to the governor's headquarters. That is the place where Pilate lived right across from the temple. It was early morning, and they themselves did not want to enter the governor's headquarters so that they would not be defiled but could eat the Passover. It's Passover time, and they don't want to be dirty. They don't want to be unclean. They don't want to be sinful. They don't want to be uh, 
you know, disqualified from participating in the Passover festivities. And the heart of the Passover was the slaying of a lamb. As you remember from the book of Exodus, if you're familiar, a lamb is slaughtered and its blood put over the doorpost so that God's people would be forgiven and would not uh, be affected by his judgment. So a lamb is slain for the people so that God does not bring judgment to the people. That's, that's part of the celebration is the slaying of a lamb. And so it all points to Jesus. And so here is the lamb of God in the flesh. Here is Jesus Christ. The Passover points to Jesus. It's all about Jesus. And there is the real Passover lamb. There is the real sacrifice standing right before them. And they don't want to get defiled by stepping under the roof of a Gentile all the while, they're seeking to murder, to false, to execute on false charges, to kill God incarnate. That somehow is not defiling. They're so blinding that to kill God would not be defiling, but to walk through a threshold and stand in a building would be defiling. That to walk through that threshold would make one dirty and unclean and sinful before God, but killing God would somehow be acceptable. They're not after truth. They're missing the true Lamb of God. The Passover Lamb points to Him. The Passover Lamb's standing in front of them. And they miss it because they don't see the truth. They're not pursuing the truth. They don't want the truth. They want Jesus executed and away from them and out of their hair because God in the flesh is messing with their system, messing with their lives, drawing a following. And so they are opposed to him. Their religion has blinded them to the truth. Well, Pilate understands they can't come in, so he honors this. And it's kind of a funny thing. He's like going out and talking to them and then coming in to talk to Jesus. So he's got to go back and forth because these leaders won't come into his house. And so uh, he begins by... Uh, talking, uh, he begins by saying, what's the charges to them? Why have you brought him here? What's the charges? What accusation, verse 29, do you bring? And listen to this. Again, it's just, there's a lack of truth here. Verse 30, or a lack of openness and honesty and faithfulness, just the opposite of Jesus. They say, if this man were not doing evil, we would not have delivered him over to you. Do you see this? What are the charges? If he wasn't really bad, we wouldn't be here. Oh, oh, those are the, okay, those are the charges. There are no charges. And so he says to them, basically, well, why don't you, if you've got a problem with him, he's doing evil, why don't you judge him by your own law? You guys have a religious law? You just take care of it. Look what they say. Verse 31. Um, the Jews said to him, it is not lawful for us to put anyone to death. This was to fulfill what Jesus would, uh, had spoken to show by the kind of death he was going to die. Why are we here in front of you, Pilate? Because we don't have the authority to kill him, and we want him executed. So don't worry about the charges. He's just doing evil, or we wouldn't be here. They just want him dead, and Rome did not allow uh, the Jews to, uh, to execute. They could... They could um, they could try according to their religious law, but they, they did not have freedom to uh, administer capital punishment. Now, sometimes that would happen by mob violence. In the book of Acts, you remember Stephen is stoned. They don't go to Roman authorities. They don't do that through the courts. They just do it on their own. So sometimes by mob violence, people would die. And in chapters 8 and chapters 9, twice, when they believed him to be blasphemous, the Jews picked up stones to kill Jesus 
to stone him. So twice before there had been at least some kind of an attempt maybe to stone him, but this time they want him done and they want him executed. And it's important, they want him executed by Roman execution because the Romans executed people by crucifixion. And they want him crucified because crucifixion is so abhorrent Crucifixion is so vile that the Jews, they hated crucifixion and they viewed anyone as crucified is cursed by God. Someone who is hung or someone who is crucified is viewed as cursed by God. And so they want Jesus to be publicly on display as cursed by God so that all of his followers were disbanded. All those who've been following him who said he's the Messiah will say, there's no such thing as a crucified Messiah. You cannot have a crucified king. You cannot have a crucified Lord because crucified means cursed. It means God is opposed to that person. So this will be the public display that he is not who he said he is. And so they think by the fact of his crucifixion that they will win because he'll lose his following because he's cursed. But look at verse 32. It says, Jesus says this was to fulfill what he had spoken to about the kind of death he was going to die. In chapters, chapter 12, verse 32 and 33, John records Jesus as saying that he would be lifted up to die and would draw all people to himself. He said that he spoke of this, of the kind of death that he would die. Jesus predicted in chapter 12 he would be lifted up to die, not stoned, but lifted up on a cross. Jesus said he would be lifted up on a cross. And not only is Jesus opposed to the idea that he appeared to be cursed by being lifted up in this abhorrent way and killed, he says that's the very kind of death the Father wants him to have. He wants people to look and say, he is cursed. Because that's exactly what he is doing on the cross. Galatians 3, Paul writes this, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. Paul says, the Bible says, cursed is everyone who hanged on a tree. That is true. Jesus is cursed, but not because he's wrong, not because he's sinful, not because he's lying, not because he's deceptive, because we are. That's the reason he's cursed, because we're liars, we're deceptive, we're opposed to God. And so Jesus dies as a curse for us. To break the law means that we receive God's judgment, God's penalty. God's curse for our sin. And Jesus takes that curse for us. This is all orchestrated by God. Do the people hate God? Do they want him shamed? Do they want him to appear as a curse because they want his followers disbanded? Yes, but God wants the same thing because he's going to save people through that. Because God himself is going to be a curse for sinful people like you and me so that we can be forgiven. And herein is the love of God on display Jesus is true. They are deceptive. There's a contrast going on. So Pilate then begins a further dialogue with Jesus, asking him if he's king of the Jews. And Jesus says, basically, are you sincerely interested, or did you just hear this? And Pilate says, I'm not a Jew, or asks rhetorically, am I a Jew? Expected answer, no. Your nation and chief priest have delivered you to me. So tell me, what have you done? Why are you here? What have you really done? And Jesus goes on to say, my kingdom is not of this world. Uh, I am not building a kingdom based on a geographic locale. I'm not building a kingdom based on a certain ethnicity. I'm building a kingdom based on, he goes on to say, truth. 
Whoever hears me and hears the truth, they're part of my kingdom. So to be a part of my kingdom doesn't mean you're of Rome. To be a part of my kingdom doesn't mean that you're Jewish even. To be a part of my kingdom means that you believe in me as the truth. That's the kind of king that I am. For this purpose, he says, verse 37, I was born, and for this purpose I've come into the world, to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to me. And Pilate cynically responds with, what is truth? doesn't seem like Pilate's really interested at this point. I think that's a statement that's cynical. This is a guy that deals politically that manages truth. This is a guy that, that uh, is a, he's political, he spends, he just communicates what will keep all the Jews, uh, you know, under control so that he doesn't get any trouble from those who are over him in Rome. So he knows how to give a press release. He knows how to um, just compromise so that everything is okay. What is truth? He doesn't deal as a governor in truth. His primary concern is not what is truth, what's righteous, what's appropriate, what's godly. But that is the currency of Jesus' kingdom is truth because he is truth, the way, the truth, the life. And that's the currency of his kingdom. That's the nature of his rule. And people who are in his kingdom are those who believe that he's the truth. Well, after this exchange, Pilate goes out and says, look, I don't find any guilt in him. I mean, they're engaging in what Pilate probably thinks is some philosophical discussion. I don't find a problem with him. But we have this tradition. So I release somebody at Passover. I'll release him as a prisoner, if you guys want, to which they scream, no, give us Barabbas. Barabbas had revolted against the authorities. He's called a robber here. He's called a murderer in another passage of Scripture. Barabbas' name means son of the father. Son of the father. In another ironic twist, here's everybody clamoring for the freedom and, and, and the son of the father who is this rebel. They want this rebel, this vile man released on their streets, while the man who is the son of God of the heavenly father they want killed. And so they cry, free Barabbas and kill Jesus. The Jews love their religion in this passage and not truth. That's not an anti-Semitic statement because we all love our religion. They just happen to be those historically who are involved here. I'm not criticizing Jews here. I'm saying these who are historically present love their religion and not truth, and that's true of all of us by nature. We love a system of belief and not submitting ourselves to God. Ultimately, that's natural for us. Pilate loves his political rule and not truth, and Jesus is the truth and no one's submitting to him. In all of this, how do we apply a historical narrative like this? How do we apply Jesus the faithful, Jesus the true? What 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 does this? What is the um, what is the claim of this text upon our lives today? Well, think about this: Jesus as the faithful one, Jesus who is faithful to his faithless followers. Think about his interaction with Peter. Peter placed his confidence in his obedience. It's easy to place our confidence in our obedience. Peter is confident that he will stay true. It's easy for us to be confident that we will stay true. It's easy for us to be confident in our faithfulness. One of the things I respect about so many in our church is that there are many folks in our church who are serious about their faith. 
Certainly not all of us. Some of us are not as serious about our faith, but many are serious about their faith. And um, one of the things about being serious about your faith in Christ is that you have to make difficult decisions because a disciple is a follower. So if, if you follow Jesus, it will require at junctures in your life that you make difficult decisions. And so there's a number of folks in our church that along their path, their pilgrimage, their journey with Christ, their discipleship have made difficult decisions. They've made difficult decisions, unlike Peter, to stand up in the marketplace, in their job, in their family, and say something about Jesus. That's a difficult decision. They've made financial decisions. Many of you have made difficult financial decisions. You have said, I'm not going to live off 100% of my income. I'm rather going to do something very anti-American and very countercultural, and I'm going to take, not anti-American, anti-American, uh, the American dream, I guess I should say, anti-American dream, but I, I'm going to take a portion of what I have and I'm going to give gener- generously to those in need. I'm going to give to the poor. I'm going to give to my church. I'm going to give to the mission of God throughout the world. I, I'm just going to live on less and give generously. And so you've made, uh, you've made difficult decisions about your finances. Many have made difficult decisions about their family. They've said, you know what, um, we are going to make some certain decisions about how we do marriage and how we do parenting that may be countercultural in some ways, but we're going to make those decisions because we think it would honor the Lord and it would serve our family. Some people have made hard decisions with their calendar. They said, I'm going to take time on my calendar and I'm going to invest in the body of Christ. So on a weekly basis, I'm going to be with folks in a living room and we're going to be caring for one another and learning the scripture together and applying it and growing together. I'm going to give time on Sunday to serve other people through my church. And so they've made calendar and church decisions, which have been difficult, and they have made priority commitments at various points in our lives. And so there have been decisions which were costly of your time, your finances, your relationships. You've reached out to people with the gospel, and that's been costly as well. And so costly decisions have been made at various junctures in life to follow the Lord. But here's the thing. It's hard to make costly decisions, but it's easy to trust in them once they're made and become self-reliant. That's what Peter has done. At one point, Peter made a costly decision. He dropped his nets and said, I will come and follow you, Jesus. I'm giving everything to follow you. And now, at the moment of trial, he stands before Jesus with a line of costly decisions that he's made along the way and says, I'm good to go. I will die for you. He is resting in the fact that he'll make costly decisions. He is resting in the decisions he has made. He is resting in the lifestyle that he has established for himself, and he is not realizing his need for Jesus. That's the problem. When, G- when, when he's, Jesus says, I'm going somewhere and you can't go, and he says, I can go, I would die for you. Look at how I live. I am for you. And he looks at his lifestyle and his decisions and assumes that he's okay when he should have been saying, I need you, Jesus. Because without your power and out your grace and without your sustaining power, I could turn away from you. I need you. I'm not confident in my performance. I'm not confident in my decisions. And I'm not living based on yesterday's decisions. I need you today. Shape my heart. Show me your character. Return me to the love that caused me to drop my nets. At one point, he was so enamored with Christ, so 
loving Jesus, so in awe of the grace of God that he dropped everything and said, I'll follow this Jesus. And now he's asserting his confidence in his commitment, his confidence in his passion. And he crashes and denies the Lord three times because he's not leaning on Jesus. He's leaning on himself and his commitment. He's very certain of his commitment when he should be very certain of Jesus's faithfulness, who will sustain him, who will sustain him when he's tempted to be faithless, who will carry him to the very end. He's lost Jesus and he's more aware of his commitment. I remember for years, years ago, I was a youth pastor for years, and I remember just thinking that the way to get young people committed to Jesus is yell at them about commitment. And so we would just, I would just preach and teach, be radical for God, live for the Lord. I remember one time we went on a retreat where I had something written on a banner, I don't know what it was, and everybody who wanted to follow Jesus signed it, and we brought that up. At every youth meeting, here's the banner, man, you signed that you'll follow Jesus, and your Christian life stunk this week, but you're names up here on the board. You know, that was the effect. Be radical, be committed. And what I learned is when you tell people be committed, it doesn't work. When you tell people Jesus is committed, something happens. When you tell people be faithful, and that is the message week in and week out, people wander into faithlessness. But when you tell them Jesus is faithful to die for you, forgive you and sustain you, then the heart grows in love for Jesus. And you want to follow that Jesus and not just honor a commitment that you signed and we put up on the wall for everybody to see. One fosters, I'm committed, we're radical, we're the generation that's going to blah, 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 blah. Listen, Jesus is the faithful one, and what Jesus wants to do through our generation is glorious, and we receive that. But it's not about us and our generation and our faithfulness and our commitment, and we're radical. It's Jesus was so radical that God became flesh and gave his life on the cross for us. He is radical, and that's what I'm excited about today. And what I want to be excited about and what Peter lost sight of. We need to be aware of our need and we need to have the, be aware that Jesus meets our need and that he is glorious. We need to be far more impressed with his commitment than ours. Because his commitment's eternal and lasting. Our commitment, it's about as strong as Peter's. I mean, who are we to think we would do any better than Peter in that situation? But God sustains us. He forgives us. Good news. If you've blown it and been a faithless witness, Jesus welcomes you and me with open arms today. Isn't that good news? And he promises to change us and make us a faithful witness over time by his power. Well, I'm out of time, but I've got to say at least this. Jesus is true. He's faithful and he is true. The Jews are blinded by their religious practice. They are doing religious stuff to a T. They won't go into Pilate's house because they have such religious scruples. And in their religious practice, which is a good one, they're, they're honoring Passover. They didn't come up with that. God did. So they're honoring God's word. And in their practices, they miss Jesus. That's a wake-up call for me, that I can be doing religious practices just like they are and miss Jesus. They're concerned about the Passover, the Passover's standing there, and they miss him. And we can take religious practices like this one. By the way, God, this is God's practice, not ours. Gather on the Lord's Day with his people in worship. But we can take this religious practice and miss Jesus. I mean, if we come in here today and we think, you know what? Well, I woke up, I went to church, I didn't yell. He didn't yell at the kids too bad on the way to church this week like normal. And, you know, had a little meeting. It was nice. Sang some good songs. Some guy talked about John. And we went home and, you know, kind of relaxed. And I did my religious duty. 
And so I'm okay because I did the thing I'm supposed to do. We, we could miss Jesus so easily. We're gathered here today not as an end in itself, but as a means to the end of encountering God. We're here to meet Jesus. We're here to encounter God. We're here to be touched by the Holy Spirit. We're here to sing how great he is and tell how great he is and celebrate him and honor him and serve him. That's what we're here to do. We're not just having a meeting. And if we just have a meeting and do our practice, we can miss Jesus. We can miss him in our care groups. Well, I went to the meeting this week. I'm a faithful servant. These people are doing the faithful thing to a T, and they're missing Jesus. You can go sit in somebody's living room this Wednesday night and do your deal and check it off a list and miss Jesus, and so can I. You can wake up tomorrow and read your Bible, and I hope you do. But we can wake up and have our devotions, and it's just a practice. It's a practice so that we encounter God. It's not an end in itself. You can pray and just do your prayer, and I did it. It's a means to encountering Jesus. You can do family devotions. You can study. You can witness. You can serve. All of those things are a means to glorifying God and encountering God. They're not an end in themselves. And so we can do religious stuff like the Jews here and miss the Son of God. The reason we do all of these practices, corporate worship, private worship, personal study, corporate study, group meet, uh, community group meetings, reaching out, serving a neighbor, witnessing, serving people in the church, whatever it is, we do all of these things to glorify God, empowered by God, and to meet the Lord in it and through it with his people. If we're not encountering the true and living God, we must ask for his help because all of these things are to lead to him. So the great risk for me is I can look back and say, I've made some sacrificial decisions that now are just part of my life. Years ago, you had to make a decision about the budget. How are you going to spend money? Now it's just a practice. Maybe I don't even think about the Lord in it. I think I'm okay. And I think I'm standing. Maybe I'm just doing the practices and not meeting the Lord. The good news is this isn't to bash everybody. So we walk out here feeling like, man, I'm a fake. It's so that we meet Jesus right now. So we receive the forgiveness of God for going through the motions and missing him, for elevating our practices and missing him. If we come here and think, I've done it, I fulfilled my duty, I worshiped, I did what I'm supposed to do, I'm okay. We've made the practice of corporate worship the God. And, and this is an act of idolatry. We could be worshiping the right God in the wrong way. We could be singing the right words for the wrong purpose. We can be reading the right book for the wrong purpose. We could be idolatrous in our Sunday gatherings if we think this is the goal is to fulfill this practice rather than this is a privilege and an opportunity to meet Christ by the Holy Spirit. That's what we're here for. We're here for him. We're here to meet him. So the good news is, if I came for the wrong reason, if I'm reading my Bible for the wrong reason, if I go to a small group for the wrong reason, if I'm trying to reach out to my neighbor for the wrong reason, here's the good news is that Jesus cuts through all those practices with his presence and says, I forgive you. He died for idolaters. He died for Pope folks who just go through the motions so that we can encounter the living Christ. And he makes himself available to us today. And the other thing is, like with Peter, he... Uh, he ultimately pours out his spirit and changes Peter so that Peter goes from fear to boldness. He changes Peter. God changes us by the power as well so that we don't miss him, but we see him. And every time you do see him in here or in this meeting or in your scripture, in your reading, that's the spirit of God opening our eyes to see him. That's what he does. He shows us Jesus and everything. He gives us a heart to 
want to follow him. Jesus is faithful. Jesus is true. If you don't feel so committed today, welcome. Jesus is committed, and he's committed to helping us grow in commitment and to meeting us. He's here today to extend forgiveness, freshness, empowering. He's here to change you. He's here to change me. Let's don't use this as an end in itself. This is a means to the great end, meeting Christ. Let's pray. You've been listening to a message from Grace Church. For more information, visit www.gracechurchfrisco.org. 